Good morning, Wooddale. It is great to see you here today. This has been a big week for superhero fans. And uh, Marvel this week put their tickets for sale for Marvel's Avengers Endgame. And uh, super fans were on the ticket websites really early for this. And they got a little bit freaked out because the theater websites crashed and they couldn't get tickets for the opening show. Early estimates tell us that Marvel Avengers Endgame is going to break all box office records with $800 million in sold tickets the first weekend alone. There's a scene in one of the early trailers for the film where uh, Tony Stark, or Iron Man as he's better known, is seemingly alone on a distant planet, mourning the loss of his good friend Peter Parker and wondering if he's ever going to get back to the love of his life. Almost every superhero film deals with the theme of loneliness from time to time. Captain America's lonely for the World War II friends that he made as a man living out of time. Captain Marvel misses the time that she grew up in because she can't remember it. The Hulk lives in solitude, lonely for interaction but afraid of losing control. Uh, Ant-Man lives in solitary confinement, lonely for his daughter. Black Panther lives with the lonely mantle of leadership bestowed on him because of the premature death of his father. Even Spider-Man is a lonely teenage boy living with his aunt, desperately wanting to be accepted and loved by his peers and by a father figure. I could go on and on. I really like superheroes. There's a... uh, Yes, there's a reason superhero films have been as successful as they have been in our uh, day and age. Sure, there's the special effects, the fun storylines, the comic book action, but there's also the flawed heroes that we find ourselves surprisingly relating to. I don't know a human alive who hasn't dealt with the emotion of loneliness from time to time. Maybe that loneliness is the descriptor that best fits you as you enter church this weekend. Experts suggest there are two types of loneliness. Number one is social loneliness. This happens when we're isolated from friends or family. It happens to the college student who goes away from home, and they've been so excited about getting away from mom and dad, and then they get to school, and they all of a sudden find themselves homesick for mom and dad. It's what happens when the businessman or the businesswoman is away on a trip, and they're lonely for their family. It's a very common thing. The second type of loneliness is called emotional loneliness. This happens when we feel like we don't have a soul in the world with whom we can relate, who we can share our deepest concerns with. It's it's when we feel like there's no one who understands what we're going through. You can deal with emotional loneliness when you're going through a very difficult time, but you can also deal with emotional loneliness when you feel like you're on top of the world, when to the outside everybody seems to think that you have it all together. I had a conversation with the head of a very large company not long ago. His paycheck is the envy of everybody else on the staff. He kind of rose within the ranks of his company, and he said, Brian, I'm lonely. He said, I I used to get invited out to lunch all the time. I was privy to all the office conversations, and now more often than not, if I want to go out with anybody from the office, I have to be the one who asks to be, uh, ask somebody to come with me. I never get invited. And, and I oftentimes feel like when my peers are together at my office, what they're doing is talking about me. He was incredibly successful and incredibly lonely at the same time. You know, as human beings, we're created in the image of God. And as such, God has created us with a need for uh, a diff- couple different types of relationships. The first are the horizontal relationships of friendship. 
those deep, meaningful relationships with other people. Proverbs 27, 17 has been one of my favorite verses as an adult. It simply says this, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. One of the great gifts that God has given to me in my life is a band of brothers. They're a group of guys who are a similar age at the similar calling with similar families who God has just blessed me to walk in fellowship with for about 13 years now. And these guys are guys who uh, are not afraid to get in my face when I need to be confronted. They're guys who, when I'm discouraged, are people who are ready and willing to offer encouragement. They're people who have had this refining presence in my life. And I wonder, do you have somebody like that in your life today? Do you have at least one other person in your life that you can count on that way? At almost every wedding that I have the privilege of officiating, I'll read a passage from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 and 10 simply say, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either one of them falls down, one can help the other up. But this is the sad part about the verse. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. It's a little bit like that old infomercial for Medic Alert. You know, the old woman who falls down and says, help, I've fallen and I can't get up. Some of us are emotionally there. We're like, where is that support? Where's that person? Where's that group of people who will walk alongside of me? And if that's where you're at today, I want to say that's a lonely place. And it's a place that sometimes we wonder, could Jesus even relate to that? Like, does the God of the universe who has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit even understand what it means to be lonely? In 2004, the Guardian newspaper in England did a study in which they reported that one out of every 10 people have no close friends that they can relate to. Now, the flip side of that's very good. It means 90% of people have at least one person that they feel they can relate to. Now, that same study asked some more questions. One in five people said that they never or rarely felt love in the two weeks prior to the survey. The former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy now speaks extensively about America's loneliness epidemic. An October 4th, 2017 article in the Washington Post interviewed him, and he said this. He says, when I began my tenure as Surgeon General, I did not think that I'd be talking about loneliness and emotional well-being. But when I was traveling to communities across the country, I found that loneliness was a profound issue affecting people across all ages and socioeconomic backgrounds. It's true in the urban areas and the rural areas, in the heartland of the country and on the coast. As somebody who trained as a doctor, Murthy says, I also found that in medicine, we get very little guidance for how to approach emotional well-being. We don't often screen patients for loneliness. And many clinicians aren't clear about the strong connection between loneliness and the very health problems that we are trying to address, often with medications and procedures. When you look at the data, what's really interesting is that loneliness has been found to be associated with the reduction in lifespan. The reduction in lifespan for loneliness is similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and it has a greater impact on lifespan than obesity does. And that's hard to hear, especially when you consider that experts say that the best word to describe the average American male today is the word lonely. We need horizontal relationships. It's one of the reasons that Wooddale Church offers life groups. We think that people, uh, that, that life is better together. 
We think that it's so important to have people in our lives that can encourage us and pray for us and challenge us when we need some challenging, who will uh, help us grow in our walk with Christ. And if you're not in a life group, I want to encourage you to, to get in one. It'll transform your life. It's also why we often offer Stephen Ministers. Stephen Ministry is a wonderful ministry that I would love to see more people take advantage of here at Wooddale Church. We all experience challenges in life, in life, times where we can just benefit from some care and from some support. Stephen ministers are trained volunteers who can provide emotional and spiritual care for anybody facing a difficult circumstance in life. Through confidential one-on-one -on -one times of conversation, prayer, and encouragement, a Stephen minister supports people through difficult and even life-transforming moments of their life. No one should have to live an isolated life. And that's why at the end of the service sermon today, we're going to have an opportunity for people who, who just want prayer, who want some connection, want to meet somebody to come up and meet one of our Stephen ministers. The second type of friendship that we need is a vertical friendship. In Proverbs 18.24, we read at the beginning of the verse, it says, a man who has friends must himself be friendly. Now, if you don't have friends, I want you to pay attention to the first part of that verse, okay? It might be because you're not friendly, okay? So let's be friendly, all right? But the second part of that verse says this, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and that is the vertical relationship that is not only possible, but that God desires to have with every one of us. For almost two decades now, it's hard to believe, social networking has been an option for people in America and throughout the world. It's been an opportunity to amass thousands of virtual and real friends. I know one young woman who has thousands of followers on social media who is amongst the loneliest of people that I have ever met. She's attempted to fill her life with horizontal relationships, and she's got plenty of them, but is still miserable because she hasn't paid attention to the most important relationship, and that's the horizontal relationship. We all need Jesus. And until we allow Jesus to fulfill our need for vertical friendship, we're never going to escape loneliness. The beautiful truth is that Jesus wants to be your friend. To his original disciples, Jesus uh, had this conversation with them in John 15. It was part of a larger conversation where he was doing some expanded teaching to the disciples on how they should live, and especially as he was preparing to, to leave them. And he said to them, listen, I've called you servants, but now I call you friends. And Jesus wants to do the same to you. Can you, can you see that picture of God? Or is it too difficult to view God as friend? Listen, we'll never have our need for vertical friendship fulfilled until we allow Jesus to fill it. Here at Wendell Church in 2019, we've been on a journey through Mark's gospel. And we've been doing that through three uh, short series. The first was a series that we called Reset. And at the beginning of the year, we talked about resetting our focus and your spouse's attitude, or maybe your attitude, and your identity and your faith. And then we began a series about rethinking compassion and the way we've always done things and the risk of following Jesus and greatness and commitment and the future and hope and controversy. And last week, we began this new series called Redeem. And Pastor Dale preached about uh, the drama of redemption. And today we take a look at the loneliness 
of redemption. And we're still in Mark 14, where we were last week, but we're moving forward away from the Last Supper that Jesus has shared with his disciples into a very poignant moment in the life of Jesus. Everything that you see in Mark prior to this, you see Jesus is this man of action constantly at work, and he is constantly in community. He, he has these times of solitude, but, but so much of what he does is in community. And in Mark 4, 1432, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's come to a place that's become his refuge over the course of the past week, a place of solitude to be with the Father. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. It's here where he experiences the loneliness of solitude. Gethsemane was an olive grove that overlooked the, the, the uh, city of Jerusalem. You can still go to Gethsemane today. If you ever have the privilege to go to Israel, make sure you get to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's one of these places that for me was, was the most meaningful place. I, mean, I wept in that, in that garden as we went there. It was just such a beautiful place to think that this is the place that Jesus prayed for me. It had been Jesus' habit over the course of that holy week, uh, ever since he arrived in Jerusalem, to in the morning go to the temple where he would teach the crowds. And the crowds would hang in his every word. See, he taught as someone with authority. He taught as somebody who, who had never taught that way before. The disciples would hang out with Jesus during the day. And somehow in that last week of his life, they became like uh, bickering children. They, they, they were continually jockeying for position, arguing with each other about who the greatest was and who'd have the places of honor in the kingdom. And then there were the religious leaders who in that last week were doing everything they could to scheme to take the life of Jesus. And they wanted him dead by week's end. And those were the realities of the mornings and the afternoons that Jesus would spend during that holy week. But throughout the holy week, it was his custom to go to this garden, probably owned by a friend, and to pray in solitude. Do you have such a place? I know some people can't stand to be alone for more than a few minutes without adding some more noise into their life. With the advent of cell phones that get smarter and smarter, we can't even handle sitting still without opening up our cell phone and looking at social media or reading the newest news brief. And believe me, my family will tell you, I struggle with this too. It is so hard to turn this off. It is so hard to get away from the crowds so that we can have a place of solitude where God can speak to us. Listen, Jesus' last request to the larger group of disciples on the night he was betrayed was that they would just sit at the entrance to Gethsemane while he prayed. See, solitude is a spiritual discipline that Jesus saw is necessary does solitude sometimes feel lonely, especially for the extroverts in the room? Yeah. Solitude can be difficult. But sometimes we need the discipline of solitude so that we can hear the voice of God and not the voice of everyone else. Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. He knew what was about to happen to the disciples. And I believe he invited them to this place that had really been a place of solitude for him and the Father on that night because he wanted them to be ready for what was ahead. He wanted them to know the sweet presence of God that can only be experienced when our souls are quieted before him. This prepared Jesus for a loneliness that would follow, the loneliness of spiritual warfare. Look at verses 33 and 34. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. 
My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Boy, when I look at these verses and these words that Jesus uses to describe himself, that doesn't sound like Jesus. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. No, I think about Jesus as being in, in control and at peace and recognizing the love of the Father. I, I don't picture him this way. But no human being ever experienced such anguish. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus experienced a sorrow that literally threatened his life. That's why he says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He experienced the full fury of Satan's schemes coming to fruition. When we're going through bouts of spiritual warfare, it can feel lonely. But God's there. He's there in the midst of it. He is not unaware. When Jesus was faced with sorrow, he went to his father in prayer. And he instructed Peter, James, and John, three disciples. He separated from the rest of the disciples, even on that night, to go a little bit further with him to just... Um, be there, to stay here, to keep watch. In other words, be here for me. Be alert. This is an important night. Jesus experiences the loneliness of leadership in verse 35. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if it was possible, the hour might pass from him. I went to a Christian university and we had chapel three times a week at that university. And the chaplain of the university would get up and he'd speak and he'd do the same sermon every semester, about midway through the semester. He'd get up and he'd preach from Mark 14, 35. We called it his, and he went a little farther sermon. And he'd say, students, when you're going through a tough time and you feel like quitting school, remember Jesus. He went a little further. And I'm pretty sure he butchered that passage, okay? That is not the context of the passage. It was effective. Students stayed in school. But that's not what this passage is about. As you read this passage, what you see is Jesus doing what a leader does. A little bit in front of the group that he's leading. He's, he's doing what his followers were not ready to do. He is, he's an intense prayer with the Father. They were not. You have to look at the rest of the Gospels to get the full picture of what's happening here. Luke's Gospel tells us that Jesus began this prayer on his knees. And so you kind of see Jesus praying to the Father. And Father, if it's possible, you know, take this cup from me. And you know there's much more to this prayer than what's recorded here. And then Matthew tells us that Jesus eventually gets prostrate on the ground. He is like this, praying to his Father. And when Jesus prays, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, he prayed loud. He was a, he was a passionate prayer, all right? The disciples, if they were awake, would have been able to hear what it was that Jesus was praying. Maybe that's why we have just a little bit of Jesus' prayer here. I don't know. But listen, Jesus is prostrate before the Father, praying in that spot because of the intensity of everything that he knows is coming, and he's doing it as a leader all alone. And some of you know that leadership is a lonely mantle. Some of you have big jobs at companies or schools or universities or medical facilities, and you manage lots of people, and, and sometimes you feel the weight of leadership, like, boy, if, if things go bad here, this is on me. Those of you who are parents are natural leaders with your children, and you feel the mantle of responsibility as, as moms and dads. Some of you uh, teenagers are, are leaders in your sports teams. You're leaders in, 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 at your school and student government or other things. And, and you've got the eyes of others that are on you. And you know that leadership can be a lonely place. 
I had the opportunity to mentor a lot of younger leaders. And what I'll tell them oftentimes is that leadership can be a lonely spot to be. Because when you lead, there are others behind you. And sometimes the criticism can come with that. But we don't have to lead alone. And we can lead with others. As Jesus prayed, his request was met with the loneliness of silence. Look at verse 36. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Uh, this is the, the Hebrew affectionate term for daddy. Daddy, daddy, if it's possible, daddy, can you please, can you please take this cup from me? I'm a daddy. I have four children, and I love each one of them so much. And I loved when they were little, and they would use that affectionate term, daddy, with me. They could capture me with their heart. As a father, when my children want something, I want to give it to them. Jesus is praying to the father like a son prays to his dad. And he's asking that this cup would be taken away from him, and he's, he's met with silence. What is the cup that he's asking to be taken from him? The Apostle Paul would describe it so beautifully in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And listen, I don't know if you ever memorize scripture. You should memorize this verse, even if you never do, because this is one of the truths about what Jesus did for you and your place in it. God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is saying, Daddy, if there's any other way than for me to have to go through what it will take for me to become sin, then, then let it be. Listen, Jesus knew that God the Father, as holy God, could not look upon sin. In less than 24 hours, Jesus would be crying from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he shout that? Because on the cross, Theologically speaking, Jesus became sin. And for the only time in all of history, God was separated from God because God cannot look upon sin. So can the God who has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to your loneliness? You bet he can. Jesus prayed that there'd be another way. Luke's gospel adds more to the narrative he says this in Luke twenty two forty four, and being in anguish, I picture Jesus, Luke says he's on his knees. I picture Jesus praying more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. In his classic book, Once a Carpenter, Bill Counts wrote, Luke perceives some measure of struggle in describing Jesus' perspiration as great clots of blood. It's possible that Luke himself, a physician, was noting a rare medical condition known as hematidrosis. Under extreme emotional stress, blood vessels expand so much that they break when they come into contact with the sweat glands. The suffering individual then actually sweats blood. As Jesus prayed in agony, Luke's gospel accurately records that he was covered in a bloody sweat. No person in history has ever struggled like Jesus struggled in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the cup would not pass from him, and the Father's voice would be silent. We see the loneliness of disappointment starting in verse 37. Then he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. Returning a third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Did you ever disappoint your parents growing up? I'm sure we all disappointed our parents from time to time. Whenever I disappoint my mom, my middle name came out. Brian Dean Schulenberg, what are you doing? Jesus addresses Peter with disappointment. Because by this point, Peter's name's already been changed. He was like, hey, Peter, uh, or Simon, your name's Simon, but from now on, your name's going to be Peter, the rock. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Well, that's happened already. But now, in the disappointment, Jesus says, Simon, come on. Couldn't you even stay awake with me for one hour? Because Simon, a couple hours ago, when we were sharing that meal together, you said to me, even if everybody else denies you, I won't deny you. I'll never betray you, Jesus. Peter, you can't even stay awake for an hour. Jesus modeled persistence in prayer. Three times he prayed. Three times he found the disciples sleeping. Our Lord can relate to praying for the same thing over and over and over again, only to be met with silence and disappointment. We'll all face Gethsemanes in our life. Kent Hughes pastored the college church in Wheaton, Illinois for years, and he has said, Gethsemanes are the inevitable lot of all those who follow Christ. We must embrace this truth. It was in Gethsemane that Jesus prepared himself for the cross. We need to use Gethsemane moments to lean on the Father, even when it seems like we're met with silence and disappointment. Now, there was an angel that came to Jesus at some point during that night ministered to Jesus when he's dripping with blood. Some scholars believe that if it hadn't been for that, hadn't it been for the angel, Jesus would have died right there. And something beautiful happens. Like Jesus, the third time he comes to his disciples, doesn't sound anymore like he's in anguish. Doesn't sound anymore like his soul is troubled. He's met with God. He's been received silence. And yet he's in control. And in verse 42 we see the loneliness of betrayal, but we see a confidence in Jesus as he says, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This was a dramatic moment, a fulcrum moment, if you will. The disciples had been told by Jesus that one of them would betray him. They all said, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Probably, uh, you know, just, just scared to death that it's going to be them. And now the identity of Jesus' betrayer is about to be made known to them. And they go from kind of this sleepiness where they can't even stay awake to like all awake. I mean, they are like all their senses are alert. And they see the least likely of disciples leading a raucous crowd toward Jesus. Here's Judas. You know, we look at Judas with 21st century eyes. We think of him as Judas, the betrayer. It's not how the disciples thought of him here. The disciples thought of him as Judas, the one that we trust with our money. Judas, the treasure of the disciples. Judas, the one who said, let's go to Jerusalem and we're going to stand by Jesus, not this guy. They're shocked. Verse 43 says, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared and with him was a crowd with swords and clubs set from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once, Jesus, Jude, Jesus, to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. 
The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and he cut off the ear of the high servant to the high priest. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Last week, Pastor Dale told us that there's a little bit of Judas in all of us. And that's hard to hear, isn't it? But it's true. Every one of the disciples said, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Every one of us have failed God from time to time. Every one of us have denied him from time to time. By the end of the night, the disciples saw just how capable of failure they were. Verse 50 is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. It simply says this, then everyone deserted him and fled. It was the last loneliness Jesus would deal with. It was the loneliness of abandonment. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Peter, brave, bravado, Peter, gone. John, who's going to be with Jesus later in the night, gone. Andrew, who's just so faithful and always bringing people to Jesus, gone. Jesus alone with his captors. Maybe you felt abandoned in your life. Maybe you felt that God couldn't possibly comprehend. Really? Think God can't comprehend abandonment? Have you ever been turned over to a a furious mob, bloodthirsty with demonic aggression, bent on humiliating, dehumanizing, degrading, and ultimately killing you? Listen, Jesus was abandoned in his hour of greatest need so that you and I could be redeemed or rescued in our hour of greatest need. That is absolutely astounding. Jesus endured the loneliness of redemption so that you and I could be adopted as sons and daughters of God. Friends, that's a loving God. That's a friend who sticks closer to their brother. That's love. Jesus would go through solitude and spiritual warfare and silence and betrayal and abandonment and trials and false charges and beatings and incredible persecution and inhumane abuse and I'm out of fingers. So insults, crowd of thorns, Roman scourging, shouts of crucify him, crucify him by people who once worshipped him. And then there's the humiliation of the cross where he becomes sin. Why? So that you and I could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That is powerful. That is love. That ought to stir our hearts. Now Mark does something amazing at the end of this passage. He includes these two little verses that don't seem to make sense in context. He says, A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Like that sounds like the weirdest two verses in the world to throw at the end of a story. Scholars have debated for years, who is this young man? Some think he's Mark talking about himself. Some think he's maybe John. Others think he's totally symbolic. There's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, a research professor much smarter than me. His name's Abraham Kuravila. He's written an article about this called, Who Was the Young Man? And he believes he's Mark, but he says, notice that Mark uses the words following Jesus. Mark's using a literary device in these verses. 
Every time Mark talks about following Jesus, and really throughout the Gospels, when you see following Jesus, here at Wooddale, you should know this, that means a disciple. We say that disciples are people who are following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, living on mission for Jesus. So this is a disciple who is following Jesus. And the young man is reminiscent of all of us who call ourselves disciples. In some ways, we're placed in the narrative by Mark. Disciples follow, and the young man followed. The disciples fled. And the young man fled. Followers have become fleers. In this story, we see the complete and utter failure of Jesus' disciples. Nakedness points to the shamefulness of the disciples' abandonment. They choose fear and they choose shame over fidelity to God. Jesus would face execution alone, a solitude that would uh, climax at its fullest when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's only one other time in the Greek that the word for linen garment is used in Mark's gospel. And it's in Mark 15, 46. This time it's Joseph of Arimathea who buys a linen garment. And, and, and he takes the body of Jesus down from the cross and he wraps Jesus in that linen garment. Again, if Mark is using a literary device, what he's doing is he's saying, hey, the garment of shame that the young man had has been replaced by the garment of redemption. Jesus Christ has redeemed us, the garment of righteousness. Jesus took our shame on the cross. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So as I close today, I want to read uh, just a very short passage from a classic book by Max Lucado. It's the book, And the Angels Were Silent. And he's speaking about these moments that Jesus had in the garden. Jesus wanted you to know that he's been there too. He knows what it's like to be plotted against. He knows what it's like to be confused. He knows what it's like to be torn between two desires. He knows what it's like to smell the stench of Satan. And perhaps most of all, he knows what it's like to beg God to change his mind. But hear God say gently but firmly, no, for this is what God says to Jesus. And Jesus accepts the answer. At some moment during the midnight hour, an angel of mercy comes over the weary body of the man in the garden. As he stands, the anguish is gone from his eyes. His fist will clench no more. His heart will fight no more. The battle, the battle's been won. You may have thought that it was won in Golgotha. It wasn't. You may have thought the sign of the victory is the empty tomb. It isn't. The final battle was won in Gethsemane. And the song of conquest is Jesus at peace in the olive trees. For it was in the garden that he made his decision that he would rather go to hell for you than heaven without you. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are blown away at your son, Jesus the obedience that he displayed by going to the cross, the humility that he showed, the fact that Jesus as our perfect lamb did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. It is so appropriate, God, that we get to come to your table now. God, we pray that as we come to this time of sweet communion with you, that this would be a time where you would speak to us. Where God, you would have the freedom to work in our lives. God, where we have been playing with sin and playing with you, may the games go away. God, may we be 
like the disciples after the resurrection, not before. God, help us to live as men and women, as young men, young women in this generation whose lives are marked by your Spirit's work in us. Lord, we don't want to play games. Forgive us for the times that we have treated this table of communion like a game where we have cheapened your sacrifice. God, we pray that you'd meet us here now. In Jesus' name, amen.